Hi, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Blame It on the Aliens. I'm your host, and this is a Halloween edition episode. Get ready to get spooked. I have stories from No Sleep subreddit, Creepy Encounters, Let's Not Meet, and Glitch in the Matrix. A big variety for everybody, just to make sure that all bases were covered and that everybody was thoroughly spooked. And with that being said, and without further ado, let's get into it. and didn't realize that there were strange sounds coming from my house. I've been steadily losing my hearing from a very young age. I learned to talk and can still interact with people if I'm wearing my hearing aids, but if I leave them out, I am totally deaf. Cannot hear a thing. Nada. Zilch. I used to have a roommate who would practice playing the tuba while I slept only 10 feet away. This does suck sometimes because I can't properly enjoy music. Radio is just white noise to me, and it's hard to hold down a job when your customers keep getting frustrated at your poor communication skills, but usually I don't mind it. I've always been the type who enjoys peace and quiet, so when I'm home, I can take my hearing aids out and relax in total silence. As you may have gathered from the title, the problem with this is it's impossible for me to tell if that silence is empty or not. I first started suspecting that something may be wrong the first time I had a woman over at my new house. It was a nice medium-sized dwelling in a small town that I inherited from my grandpa. I was in the bedroom and things were getting kind of hot and heavy between us and the young woman I brought home suddenly stopped and motioned for me to put my hearing aids in, which I did. She was scared when she spoke. I heard something downstairs. Can you go check? Truth be told, I was more than happy to stay in there behind a locked door. I may be deaf, but I'm not dumb. I've seen plenty of horror movies, and we all know what happens to the one who goes off to do their own investigating on a strange noise. Unfortunately, for my well-being, my secondary brain was in charge then, and it knew I wasn't getting any if I didn't go check things out. I crept downstairs silently. Well, I think it was silent. Anyway, there was no one in the living room or kitchen, and none of the doors or windows were open. Before I could finish checking, my date flew downstairs and ran out of the door before I could even register what had happened. She never again returned my text, and I haven't seen her since. A smarter man than me would have noped the fuck out of there once that happened, but I rationalized it away, and after a few weeks, I had all but forgotten that incident. The next big red flag came one day when I was playing Star Wars, the Old Republic, on my computer in my living room when two police officers suddenly kicked in my door and pointed their guns at me. I didn't have my hearing aids in, so I just sort of froze there until one of them cuffed me and the other went upstairs. When he came back, they spoke to each other briefly and started asking me questions I couldn't understand. It took a while, but I finally convinced them to uncuff me so I could put my hearing aids back in. And what they told me after this gave me chills and still does to this day. Apparently, my neighbors heard screaming coming from my house and called 911. When those two officers arrived, they heard the screaming themselves and kicked in my door. The one who searched the house found no sign of anyone else there. Since they had nothing on me, they eventually did just leave, albeit with the warning to keep my video game turned down. It was on mute, by the way. 
That was when I finally started getting scared. I decided to leave my hearing aids in from now on. Three days later, while I was making myself a nutritious dinner of ramen noodles, it finally happened. I heard footsteps upstairs. It sounded like someone was running back and forth between rooms. Even then, I tried to rationalize it away. I told myself it was probably the house making noise. I was always reading in books that houses made noise, so that was probably normal house sounds that I've never noticed before on account of being deaf. Then the toilet flushed and I heard more running footsteps. Fuck, never read about a self-flushing toilet. I got a kitchen knife and went upstairs as quietly as possible. Yes, my dumbass probably should have called the police, but what if they didn't find anything like last time? I checked the bathroom first and it was mercifully empty. Then the guest bedroom, which was also empty, but something caught my eye. There's a large dresser with a mirror on top in the guest room. It reaches almost to the ceiling. I never paid much attention to it before, but something about it today seemed off. When I drew closer, it became clear what was wrong. The dresser was sitting on a slight angle. I never noticed before, but there were wheels underneath it, and it made almost no noise when I pulled it away from the wall to reveal a large hole that opened up a room I never knew existed. Inside the room was a pile of old, ratty blankets with a noticeable dent in the middle of them, like a nest. Candy bar wrappers, empty potato chip bags, and open cans were strewn across the floor around the pile of blankets. There was a rusty old filleting knife in the corner, like the kind my grandpa used to own by the dozen. As you can imagine, I decided that the best course of action was then to leave as quickly as possible, and I left the guest room and headed towards my bedroom, but I stopped in the hallway before I could get to it. The door was slightly ajar, and I could see a shadow moving around in there. I walked slowly to the stairs, and when I took the first step, I somehow managed to place my foot directly on the loudest creaky spot on the whole damn staircase. The noise was loud, even to me, and as soon as it was over, new sounds followed. Horrible, piercing screaming and footsteps rushing towards me from behind. I leaped down the stairs in two bounds and was out the door seconds later. Luckily, the town was small enough that I was able to run all the way to the police station in only a matter of minutes. They never did find whoever was living in my guest room. I've all but given up hope on finding a buyer for the place because sure as shit am not living there anymore. I guess the moral of the story is wear your hearing aids, people. I was involved in two encounters that scared the life out of me. The first one is pretty short. In 2011, I had just graduated from university and fell into light depression. Naturally, I would wake up later than the rest of the household and given that my room was the loft conversion, which also is an ensuite, any morning noise did nothing to interfere with my sleep. One such morning, around 10 a.m., I lightly awoke to some shuffling. Thought it was probably the birds perched on the roof and went back to sleep. However, 20 minutes or so later, some light noise disrupted my sleep again. And when I looked in the direction of the noise, I saw two blurry faces in the distance holding the bathroom door ajar. I realized they saw me too, and I couldn't do anything but freeze. Before I knew it, I heard a hurried shuffling, followed by two bangs, which means they jumped into the extension in the garden. I remained frozen in bed like a popsicle until it all died down. 10 minutes later, I checked the ensuite and saw footprints all over the toilet seat, which is just below the windowsill. Bear in mind, the window is tiny, and you really need to be a contortionist to fit in there, 
So how they got in is a mystery to me. Since then, that window remains closed. Story two. Several years later, in 2017, I saw one of my neighbors walking her dog. I'd never spoken to her before, so I expected an awkward salutation until we moved towards directions. But it came to pass that she was taking the same route that I was. We got to talking and she started telling me how she loves art house movies. This delighted me because I never get to meet people like that in real life. So we exchanged numbers in order that we can recommend movies to each other. For a whole week, we were texting about our favorite movies, scenes, and directors. Then one night, she called me. I thought it was unusual since we're not like cordial enough for a phone call. I answered, hello, but heard nothing other than static. I repeated a few times and heard nothing but some static and some shuffling. After about two minutes, I put the phone down and thought she had pocket dialed me. Then she called me again, but this time she was whispering. I told her I couldn't hear a few times. This happened at least four times within five minutes. I really didn't think anything of it. On the fifth try, I finally heard her, but it was not something anyone wants to hear. There are people in the house. I'm alone underneath the bed. Call the police. I thought she was joking, but quickly realized that we aren't that close for her to think she can play such pranks on me. I told her to remain on the phone, my heart racing. I rushed to the window so that I can see her house, diagonal to mine. To my shock, I saw two flailings, like two lightsabers on the bottom floor. She was breathing heavily on the phone. I asked her where her room was, and she said it was the one facing the street just above the front door. She reached for the tall curtains from underneath the bed and started lightly shaking them. I got her signal. She stayed on the phone. I immediately called the police and explained the situation. They said a few units were on their way post-haste. I knew the cops would take time. For the last few months, I took up a casual delivery role with Just Eat, which is a food delivery service like Uber Eats. So knowing that knocking on the door to spook the intruders could put me at risk given that they may see my face, I put on my earphones, some stuff in a bag to make it look like a package, a helmet with the face covering, and hopped the motorcycle, covered the number plates with black tape located in the garage behind my house to make it look like I was delivering something. I went all around the street and accelerated towards her property. In the meantime, I told my neighbor not to speak and that I will walk her through everything I'm doing. I'm going during the buzzer, I said to her. My heart was beating so fast I felt faint when my hand touched the buzzer. I cannot describe how difficult it was for me to press it. It was as if I was lifting double my body weight. Now... I'm thinking any real criminal would run away. Not these guys. I didn't hear anything, but I saw the torches be turned off. So I rang again. Nothing. No noise, no shuffling, nothing that would make one think that someone was trying to escape. All I heard was her breathing. I saw a half-broken brick on top of the bin people place them to protect the bins from flying open when it's windy. So I pushed the brick next to my feet just in case I'd have to use it. Then suddenly I became brave. I pressed the buzzer again, but this time I yelled, delivery for number X. I heard some footsteps, so I repeated it. A husky voice from the other side of the door said, number Y is next door. My heart almost stopped. My brain began to scatter and I stammered, um, sorry, sir. Then I heard the most beautiful noise in the world, sirens. I'm not the greatest fan of cops, but that sound made me feel safer the first time ever. It was like hearing Frank Ocean's nights for the first time. 
That is when the fear, which the criminals in my house had the courtesy of possessing, became vocal. Hurrying movements and shuffling radiating from the house. I heard a door from a distance swing open, followed by rushing footsteps, implicative of running. As the footsteps joined into the unified sound of a whole city, sirens soon flushed out all that noise. I told her to remain silent and remain alert. When the cops were in front of the house, I took my helmet off. The cop asked me if I was the one who called, and I said yes. Is she still in there? Yes. They surrounded the house and knocked on the door. Nobody answered. The cops told me to ask her to remain in the house. Another cop then radioed in, saying the back door was open and the garden window was smashed. They said they were going. After searching the house, they found her underneath the bed safe. A few cops went out to search for the suspects, but because my area is full of lakes, ponds, rivers, thickets, and marshes intertwined with residential properties, it was difficult to find them. I went back to put my bike into the garage. When I came back, she looked visibly shaken, but also happy. She thanked me, and I was happy that she was fine. They could not take anything, as a bag of some valuables were found scattered in the garden. They probably felt the inventory was too heavy for them to make a swift escape. This whole ordeal lasted longer than the time it took me to write this, but I'm happy I finally put it on the proverbial paper. Why now? I was reminded when two police officers knocked on my door to inform me that the suspects had finally been caught and they had used the footprints from the bathroom and DNA from hers to identify them. The robbers were caught in the act and charged with the two previous attempted break-ins for the one at mine and hers. I guess the thieves were still laymen when they had attempted to break into my room and were easily irked. Not so much the second time around. Whatever they may feel now, let's not meet a third time. This was an event that happened in my childhood that to this day, I've never gotten over. This was around the time of my ninth birthday and looking back on this night, I was sure I may not have made it to my 10th had it gone any different. At the time, my family, one of my best friends from school, Tasha and I were visiting our family friend's cabin for a party about 15 minutes from our own. This party was large and as all the surrounding cabins were filled with the other acquaintances and close friends. Everyone knew each other and everyone had kids of their own, so there were plenty of people to play with for my younger brother, friend, and I. The cabins were off of a small gravel road that connected to a larger main paved one and was fairly secluded. In the middle of the cabins was a cleared section of forest with a bonfire pit that was the communal party grounds. Otherwise, all the cabins were separated by short trails through dense forests just large enough for pickup trucks to squeeze through. Since all the cabins were connected by this gravel road and had trails going in between it, made territory for hide-and-seek, or manhunt, as the older, cooler kids called it when we were visiting, very fun. This was super common pastime while the adults chatted and since all the children, including my brother and I, were well acquainted with the broad age range between seven to 13, it was one of the only things we could all do together while still having fun. We had played hundreds of times over the many visits we shared and it was not uncommon to hide in the backyards, ditches, just into the forest and under decks. We always drew clear boundaries set by the older kids to contain the many kids to a fair playing area and stayed out playing well past sunset most nights until it eventually got too dark to see. None of the adults minded us running around like this since everyone knew everyone and the small cluster of cabins were close together and the patches of dense forest between them were no more than a hundred meters deep before you hit someone's yard. Of course, it also meant that all the children would be occupied so the parents and adults could drink and talk without inhibition. This night, however, we wanted to expand the playing field. Along with my friend Tasha, many of the other 
kids had friends with them and other invitees from outside of the area had brought kids along as well. It was decided that our normal playing zone was way too small for our numbers to be fair, and so the request was made to extend to the next cabin cluster over. The adults were hesitant, as the next cluster was only accessible by going all the way up the gravel road to the bigger paved one, and then walking a good distance down it until the next gravel road shot off from it. However, with the promise to pair up and the urging of all the kids, this was permitted with the caveat that we all return to our normal playing grounds before sunset. This was occurring at the time of year where fall had set in and it was very cold in the evenings. However, the trees still had all of their dead leaves, so the forest were only marginally sparser. Tasha and I were playing together as a pair in the usual cluster, but realized that the only people around were other hiders and figured it would be more fun to try and stalk to taggers who were definitely in the next cluster. We held hands along the paved road just in case one of us fell into the steep ditches on either side, but also for the warmth as, I mean, it was freezing. Once we got to the other cluster, Tasha and I immediately split up like spies. Tasha would scout about 50 feet in front of me and motion me forward when the coast was clear while I watched for our taggers from behind. This continued with a few narrow escapes and a lot of running and careful scoping. These roads and paths none of us had played on and the new territory was thrilling but we were sensible enough not to run in other people's yards or under their decks. This left us exposed on the road to taggers, but it was safer in the unfamiliar landscape. What happened next was so shocking that at the time I remember thinking I was making it up until my story was corroborated by Tasha and the other kids. As Tasha and I were making our way, like I described down the main gravel road, we thought we heard footsteps crunching along and decided to duck behind two different cars parked on the road. Tasha was fairly far in front of me and I lost sight of her as I crouched behind my own car. I remember staying there for a few minutes to make sure the ghost was clear, but waited for a signal from Tasha to say we were okay up for ahead. Eventually, I got antsy and stood up to tell her to stop hiding. I have no idea how my instincts completely failed me, but to my horror, a large, ice-cold, rough hand sprung out to snatch my wrist. I jumped in shock and spun around to see that behind me was a tall man in a red hoodie and a black beanie. He was looming over me with one hand in his jean pocket and the other holding my wrist in a death grip. I was so surprised I couldn't even scream. It was like my throat was suddenly filled with cement and my voice had become a heavy rock that sunk down into my stomach. I was frozen, just staring up at this stranger with no expression. It felt like hours of just staring at each other, just both of us completely still. Even at nine, I could clearly see the turmoil rolling over in this guy's face. It disturbed me to feel how he would tighten and loosen his hold on my wrist like he was contemplating something. My mind was steamrolled with panic while this continued for what I assume now was only seconds. What did this guy want? Was this his car? Was he mad? Like, was he going to tell my parents I messed with it? Was I in trouble? Where was Tasha? Did he own a cabin here? Maybe he wanted us to play somewhere else? Finally, the silence and stillness stopped and the man grunted. It pulled me right out of my thoughts and I saw him move his hand inside of his pocket like he was fishing for something. He was fidgeting around in there and it was super distracting. I was staring at his hand wondering what was going on when I saw under the edge of his hoodie the unmistakable shape of a five-inch buck knife tucked into his waistband on the opposite hip. At the same time I saw it, His grip firmed and he started pulling me off the road and towards the forest. Finally, my survival instincts kicked in and I immediately started to struggle, pulling against him in a losing battle due to the gravel under my shoes. It seemed to surprise him and he temporarily relaxed his hand just enough so that I could yank my arm away. 
He stood there and watched as I ran off, down the road and towards the nearest older kid I could see. I looked back, just once, and in his hand was the buck knife. But I was already too far for him to chase. When I did find another older kid, I told them to walk back with me to find Tasha. Still shocked from what happened, I told them I lost her, but when we got back to the cars, Tasha immediately ran up to me and started to freak out. The older kid wanted to know what was going on, and when pressed, I explained what had occurred. The older kid swiftly walked us to a larger group of kids and made us all walk back to the other cluster and said the game was over. Then they and three other older kids went around and yelled that the game was over and wrangled up the other kids. Once we were all accounted for, the older kids ran over to the adults and told them what had happened. From there, everything devolved into chaos as angry parents with flashlights hopped on quads and drove off to search while other adults checked on all of us. When all was said and done, we found out that Tasha had seen the whole thing and was just about to signal to me when she had peeked out from behind her car and saw the man standing behind me. She said he was actually there for a while before I got up and described the same behavior as I did. Still quiet, hand moving around in his pocket, just looming. She had stayed hidden behind the car and said he wandered in the forest after I had left. It's only now that I'm older and I understand he was playing with himself through his pocket and considering taking me into the woods to have his way and possibly kill me, considering the knife. We found out later that night A few other kids had seen him walking down the paved road and sitting just at the edge of the forest on a few different occasions, but didn't think much of it. Our parents never found wherever he went, mostly due to the large gap in time between when he disappeared and when we told our parents. To this day, it remains a super repressed memory that becomes an intrusive thought once in a while. Like I mentioned, even at the time, I thought I had imagined the experience. It was just too real. And though I have had times in my life where I felt worse in the moment, I get sick thinking about what would have happened. It makes me feel even worse to think about how I left Tasha and what would have happened if she had been discovered or had come to my aid. The world is full of sick fucking weirdos. I've had a stalker for about four years. He was never aggressive or sent me proper threats, so... Stubborn as I am, I did my best to ignore him and not give him the satisfaction of showing him any fear. To be honest, after a while, I also wasn't scared anymore since he almost never came close to me. I know being stalked can affect people severely, even in a case like mine, and that's totally valid. But I guess I, I just got lucky and was never really psychologically affected by it. His stalking behavior mostly just consisted of sending me letters and gifts, such as photos of my own apartment building from the outside, things he dug out of my trash can, and so on. I called the police many times, but they weren't able to or really tried TBH to catch him or identify him. About three weeks ago, I discovered the German version of r slash IMA and thought that people might want to know about what it's like to have a stalker. Since I barely use any social media aside from Reddit and have no personally identifying information here, I didn't think he'd ever see it. One person even asked, does he know you're putting him on blast on Reddit? And I answered, maybe. Maybe it would make him angry. Maybe he'd be turned on. Don't know, don't care. Well, I know the real answer now. He did see it, and he did not like it. Like I said, he was never aggressive and never came really close to me. The closest I know of was when he sent me a picture of myself unlocking my apartment door, taken from the corner of the steps above. 
Sorry if that makes no sense. I don't really know how else to explain it. But I consider myself a pretty vigilant person, and I'm thinking that he might have hit a camera there instead of being there to take the photo himself. I think I would have noticed him if he did. I don't know how he got wind of the AMA, but he did. The next week was quiet, no letters, and I didn't see him anywhere. Then he left me letters with printed out questions and my answers from AMA. He also left me a long, hateful letter towards my boyfriend about an issue I had posted on the German version of Am I the Asshole? His letters were never hateful like that before, though he never seemed happy with my boyfriend. He wrote about how I should share the spotlight with him since I got so much attention thanks to him. A few days later, I got a gift, but this time he didn't leave it in my mailbox or at my car like he usually did. No. This time, he left it inside the apartment building right in front of my door. I didn't take it inside my apartment, but opened it outside. It was a pretty big box, which was also unusual, and it was taped shut. As I'm typing it out, I realized that wasn't a good idea at all and could have ended badly for me, but luckily he didn't send me a bomb or anything. He did, however, send me several zip ties, a roll of tape, like the kind you use to tape off walls while painting, nothing you can use to restrain somebody, a TV remote with most buttons picked off, A pack of Band-Aids with a few used ones, not actually, but made to look that way according to the police, and a framed picture of me. I could tell that the picture was taken a few days ago and my boyfriend was next to me, but cut out of the photo. The frame was shattered and the package was just full of glass shards, clearly more than just what had fallen out of the frame and They were also intentionally put inside the crumbled newspaper that was stuffed in there to keep it all in place. I called the police right away and gave it to them. They were more concerned this time. Finally, thanks, and told me that they'd send a patrol car more frequently. He didn't show up or leave me any letters, gifts for about another week and a half. But eight days ago, it started again found letters in my mailbox where he wrote about how he wasted his time on me, how I haven't been appreciating his effort, how he was wrong about me being special. Five days ago, I left my apartment in the morning and heard a crunch sound as I stepped on my doormat. He put broken glass under it in the night. I went off to work because I was in a hurry and just was going to make my boyfriend call the police, but then I found my car had also been vandalized. The sides were scratched, lights smashed, and the windshield had a phrase painted on it. It's time soon, miss, with my last name. I went back inside and called the cops myself. They found the same phrase on a note under the doormat. This time, they really, really, really took me seriously which might have been because I was just pissed at this point, which I made very clear. If for some reason you're like me and just too stubborn to be afraid of a stalker like mine, then all of this, the letters, gifts, photos, even the damn glass under my doormat are just really annoying and inconvenient. But my car was useless to me now and the threat scared even me. I did, however, have a dash cam in my car, and it caught everything. The police took the footage as evidence, even though the dash cam footage wasn't of high quality, and I had given them photos of him that were just as good before, but they said it wasn't enough. And they told me they'll look into it further and promise to send me more patrol cars again. Then it was quiet for two more days until two days ago. Someone rang the doorbell at just after 4 a.m. My boyfriend and I got up, but we were both hesitant, but I saw blue lights outside, and just as I got up, I heard them shouting, 
This is the police. Please open the door. They told us that they were called by one of our downstairs neighbors who came home from his night shift about an hour earlier and heard someone else enter the building after him before they felt the door shut. My neighbors know of my situation and I've asked them to make sure they don't let strangers into the building. This neighbor then went into his own apartment and looked through the people. We have motion-activated lights in the stairway, so he waited to see if they turned back on. They did. Then he saw a middle-aged man walk upstairs. Above this neighbor are only me and my boyfriend and a single mom with three kids who probably won't be getting any visitors at 3 a.m. So he called the police. They came and found my stalker one half floor above me on the stairs. He should have been able to see the cop car since there's a little window up there and they had their lights on, but he either missed them or wanted to get caught. They found a pocket knife on him and he confessed to being a stalker right away. He's finally caught. They got him. It took four years a provocative Reddit post and one very vigilant and caring neighbor, but he's finally done. For now, at least. He's facing several charges and I've collected every single piece of evidence over the past four years. I don't know what kind of outcome I can expect, but for now, I've finally gotten some peace. I already wrote this in a comment, but I genuinely cannot stop thinking about it. Today... At 9.30 p.m. for the first time in over a year, I took the trash out by myself in the dark. My boyfriend always did it just to be safe, but today I had nothing to worry about. Admittedly, I was a foolish and immature teenage girl when I graduated high school 23 years ago. While others were focused on securing military futures and or furthering their education, I was really only looking forward to moving out of my parents' home and moving in with my high school sweetheart. It would end in being a huge mistake that I regret to this day, but I digress. For the sake of anonymity, We'll call him Jack. Though we lived in different towns and attended different schools, Jack and I had been dating a few years prior to graduation, and when we weren't in school, we were inseparable. So it was no surprise to anyone when we started looking for a place to rent and move in together. What did come as a surprise, however, was Jack's suggestion to share a place with two of his friends so that we could all split the bills. It wasn't quite what I had in mind, but I was familiar with both of them and eventually, against my better judgment, agreed to having roommates. The four of us soon moved into the upstairs apartment of an old two-story house in a seedy neighborhood. Of course, it wasn't long before shit hit the fan, as neither of the roommates consistently paid their share of the rent and the place was overrun by people who didn't live there. The constant drug use, fighting, property damage, kicking out random people, sleeping on the couch, etc. It was pure chaos, and I was just an outcast, living somewhere I clearly didn't belong. But the worst part of it all for me was that Jack and I had just grown apart. It was as if I really never even knew Jack at all. No pun intended. Living in a house full of potheads and drug addicts for several months made me hate drugs and even weed, to be honest. Yet I continued to smoke it myself in an attempt to find some semblance of peace and happiness. My own friends would visit often, which also helped me to cope with the hell I was living to some extent. But still, anytime I had a reason to get out of that house, I did. And so was the case on Halloween night of that year. My friend, Steph, not her real name, had stopped by to hang out and we both smoked for a bit before getting the munchies and realizing it was Halloween. 
Being that there was never any food in the fridge because someone would always steal it, we quickly recognized the solution to the problem and set out on foot to relive our youth and score some free chocolate bars. Now, I, I know what you're thinking. Yeah, we were too old to be trick-or-treating. Yes, we should have been ashamed of ourselves for taking candy that was meant for little kids. Yes, we were selfish and immature. No, we didn't care. We were just hungry. The timing was perfect as people had just started filing down the streets with kids in goofy costumes racing from door to door. Steph and I weren't wearing costumes because, well, we were bums. And that's the answer that we gave every time we knocked on our door and they asked. I'm sure some of the ones who didn't answer had already figured out when they saw us that the used wrinkly Walmart bags we held open for candy was an indicator. Having satisfied our munchies while eating candy along our little adventure, we decided to keep walking and knocking as long as we could to increase our future candy stash. It wasn't until the streets were silent and empty with nearly every porch light turned off before we finally called it quits and began our long trek back to the apartment in the dark. The mood soon changed on the way back and up to that point, it had been a fun and memorable night, but for some reason, neither of us could shake this awful feeling of impending doom as if we were about to star in our own real life horror movie. From a rational perspective, this fear was simply due to walking in the dark on Halloween, but the fact that we never told anyone where we were going or what we were doing stuck in our minds. We weren't even sure if anyone knew that we even left the apartment. Not that any of them would have cared, but just the thought of nobody knowing or having a shred of information to share if we went missing somehow was suddenly quite unsettling. The night air grew colder by the time we finally found ourselves speeding down the hilly block of houses that led to my apartment, and we were both glad to see that the porch light in front of my door was still on. We slid our pace towards the bottom of the hill, and as we crossed the street towards the sidewalk, our fears soon became a reality. From behind a vehicle parked in our neighbor's driveway, a very tall man quietly stepped out of the darkness. As silly as it sounds, he was wearing what appeared to be a large hairy werewolf mask draped over his entire head, paired with Freddy Krueger gloves on his hands. He stared intently, gently tapping the long spiky claws of one of his gloves against his chest as he rounded the bumper of the vehicle before slowly moving toward us with each step. It was actually quite terrifying at first, but I quickly assumed that it must have been somebody we knew from the apartment just trying to scare us. So brave little me started laughing and mocking his stupid outfit. What the man did next chilled me to my core. Still silent, He stopped moving, cocked his head to one side, and lowered his hand from his chest. Then he suddenly started speed walking right toward us. A second wave of fear cursed through my veins as Steph and I instantly bolted across the sidewalk towards the front door. Steph made it through the threshold first, and I leapt inside soon after, quickly turning to slam the door and lock it. I saw the wolf mask facing me immediately behind the door as I did so, and just as I locked the deadbolt, he tried turning the handle from the other side of the door to get in. We were merely a split second away from whatever that was. Steph and I collapsed on the floor trying to catch our breath, and as we did, we heard him scratching at the door with his claws. Someone eventually looked down to the stairwell to see what the commotion was about, but by that time, the scratching had ceased. As we made our way upstairs to see who was and who wasn't in the apartment, I was shocked to see a room full of people that included both of the guys I suspected of pulling the prank, as they were similar in height and build to the man outside. One of the guys did go outside to see who might be trying to get in, but the man was long gone. 
everybody in the apartment denied having anything to do with it. And they all could have cared less, including Jack. So it really didn't seem like they were behind it. The only other possibility that crossed my mind was the guy who lived below us with his wife and baby on the first floor. But when I later asked his wife about it, she told me it couldn't have been him because they were all inside that night and they didn't even have any company over. Steph and I never did learn the true identity of the wolfman and we will never know his true intentions. Perhaps it was a well-orchestrated prank by someone we knew, or maybe it was simply a prank by a random stranger. I prefer to think of it as a prank either way because regardless of who was behind that mask, the thought of this being anything other than a prank is so disturbing. As for Jack, our relationship finally ended when I left him. After I moved out, he kicked his friends out of the apartment for not paying rent, and he was stuck cleaning up the mess they left behind. Great time to man up, Jack. To anyone who made it this far, trust your instincts. Stay smart, stay safe, and stay sane out there. This happened in the summer of 2017. My girlfriend and I are from St. Catharines, Ontario, Canada. We both attended university there and decided to take a road trip through the United States to celebrate our graduation. Our destination was Miami, Florida. Her family owns a condo near the beach, so we had a free place to stay. We decided to drive instead of fly because we wanted to see a bit of the country on the way down and visit a few friends. The trip usually takes about 20 to 24 hours by car nonstop, and we were planning on making multiple stops. The first part of the road trip was a wonderful experience. We went shopping in Buffalo, then made our way down to Pittsburgh and managed to catch a Pirates game. However, once we hit West Virginia, things changed. It was nothing but endless wilderness and a few small towns sprinkled in between. We had plans to meet up with some friends for dinner in Charlotte, North Carolina, so we wanted to get through West Virginia ASAP. We only made stops when we absolutely had to. We ended up stopping for gas at a pretty remote spot. My girlfriend and I got out of the car. I started pumping gas, and she went inside to use the washroom and pick up some snacks. My tank was about half full when I heard a voice behind me ask, Y'all lost? looked behind me and saw a middle-aged white man with long, messy brown hair that reached down to his shoulders and an unkempt beard with dashes of grays and what looked to be drops of dried-up mucus. His clothes were torn up and dirty, and he smelled like a mixture of beer, sweat, pee, and feces. He was a little overweight, but pretty tall. I'm six foot, and he was about four inches taller than me. The teeth he still had left were yellowish-brown. On his right cheek, just under his eye, was a tattoo of some kind of pentagram. I'm pretty into YouTube videos about true crime and cults, so I was able to recognize what it was pretty quickly. He was standing very close to my face, to the point where the smell of his breath was making me dizzy, so I backed up. No, sir, just passing through, I said nervously. Not too often we see tourists passing through these parts. He responded, where are you headed? As he said this, he moved even closer than he was before. I had my back up against my car and couldn't move back any further. I wanted to get away from this guy as quickly as possible, but the car was still filling up with my gas and my girlfriend was still inside of the gas station. I don't want this dude to know where we were really going, so I told him I was visiting family in Kentucky and they were expecting us. After I said this, he cracked a weird half-smile, opening his mouth just wide enough for me to get a look at his teeth again. I'll never forget that face. His bloodshot eyes were staring deep into my soul. He let out a weird and sinister laugh. How lovely, he said. I'll see you kids around. Then he walked away. 
I was very relieved that he walked away, but also terrified by his last remarks. I didn't even see him when he pulled up to the gas station, so how did he know I wasn't alone? I figured he must have been watching my girlfriend and I when I arrived. The car was finally filled up, and I saw my girlfriend walking toward the car with bags full of snacks for the road. I noticed the weird guy was still at the gas station. It was a few pumps away from us, leaning up against an old red pickup truck, but to my utter discomfort, he wasn't alone. There were two other men and one woman with him, making the group four in total. The two men were just as big as he was, but they had shaved heads. One of them was wearing a dirty white tank top and the other had no shirt on at all. The woman was shorter, about 5'5". She was very skinny with heavy bags under her eyes and long blonde hair. They all looked like they had been living in the woods for the past 10 years. They were staring and pointing at us, talking amongst themselves. As soon as my girlfriend got to the car, I urgently told her to get in. I'm usually a pretty calm guy, so when my girlfriend noticed I was kind of freaking out, she knew something was up. They quickly entered the car, and I locked the doors, and I began hauling ass out of the gas station. And as we pulled around their red truck to the exit, I noticed there was another pentagram painted on the hood. I also noticed the skull of a goat or a ram on their windshield. The four of them began getting into their truck as soon as they saw us leaving. I knew they were going to follow us as soon as we left. I explained the situation to my girlfriend as we were speeding away from the gas station. We were zooming down the road and I looked into my rearview mirror. As I expected, the red truck was right behind us. I sped up even more and they did too. I made a left, they did too. I made a full U-turn and they did as well. My girlfriend managed to get reception and dialed 911. We gave the operator our location and they gave us directions to the nearest police station. The operator also asked for a license plate, but the truck didn't have any. Once we were off the phone with them, my girlfriend stuck her cell phone outside of the window and started pointing to it, letting the creeps know we called the police. They finally got the message and stopped following us. We arrived at the police station and filed a report. We gave them the description of the truck and suspects and the investigator said they would call us if they had any more information. We were extremely shaken, but also relieved. All we wanted to do at that point was get the hell out of West Virginia. We thought we had shaken the group for good, but unfortunately, we were wrong. We decided to drive through the night to cover as much ground as possible. The area of the Appalachia we were in had no streetlights, and I could only see what my headlights allowed me to see. Everything was fine until I noticed two headlights in my rearview mirror. At first, I didn't think anything of it, but I kept an eye on them. The headlights got closer and closer until they were tailgating us. To my complete shock and horror, it was the same red truck from the gas station. These people had somehow found us again and were right behind us. It's them, I yelled. My girlfriend began to freak out and dialed 911. I floored the gas pedal, not even knowing what was 10 meters in front of me. All I cared about was escaping. We got a mile up the road until my girlfriend yelled, watch out. There were three dead cows blocking the narrow road. I slammed on the brakes. The red truck was right behind us and we couldn't go forward. We knew we fell into a trap. All of a sudden, a naked man wearing a goat mask darted from out of the woods and began hitting our car with what looked like a large axe. The naked man got on the hood of our car and started making sheep noises. My girlfriend was still on the phone with 911, but all she could do was scream. The people behind us got out of the red truck and began walking toward our car. Two of them had rifles and one of them had a large machete. I knew what I had to do. I put the car into reverse and floored it. The naked man fell off of our car. We smashed into the truck and I managed to knock it into the ditch. After the truck was out of the way, I pulled the fastest U-turn of my life and we got the hell out of there. The people were yelling all kinds of obscenities at us and we just drove away. 
I drove as fast as I could away from these people until we finally arrived in a town and filed another police report. My girlfriend and I were uninjured, thankfully, but we were extremely traumatized. The car was still drivable after that, so we were able to get the fuck out of West Virginia the next morning. This entire experience made my girlfriend and I scared to do any more road trips. I still called the local police department in West Virginia once in a while to see if they have any leads on these people, but so far they haven't found anything. The fact that these people were able to find us after we went to the police station and drove far away still scares and baffles me to this day. Who knows what kind of sick and twisted things this cult had planned if they managed to catch us. Stay safe out there, everyone. I was 18 at the time, and it was my first Thanksgiving that I wasn't in school. My mom and I were taking our usual seven-hour trip up north. On holidays like this, it was more like nine hours to our family in New Jersey for the holiday. We used to live up there, and since moving down south, we made and still make the trip up north about four or five times a year. Needless to say, we're abundantly familiar with the interstate. We're abundantly familiar with the entire route, to be honest. The way we always go is by taking Route 64 to 295 before getting on the interstate, the beautiful I-95. It sucks. It's always filled with traffic, so naturally two of us leave at ungodly hours in the morning. And this doesn't bug us either, really, because we both wake up early anyway. So this trip started off like any other. We were out the door by 6.15, had our Chick-fil-A in hand by 6.30, and were filled up on gas and on the road by 7 or so. The first part of the trip was fine. We put on music, talked about random stuff, and gossiped as mothers and daughters do. By the time we got to the 295 exit, it was still fairly early, but both of us were wide awake. She took the exit, and we were set. The road looked as it always did, and nothing was out of the ordinary. After a few minutes of driving, though, something felt very wrong. Gone were the multiple lanes of the highway. We were now on what looked to be a country road. It cut through a cornfield and only had one lane of traffic in either direction. We were, as far as we could see, the only ones driving on that stretch of road. There was a little farmhouse on our right side, but that's about all. My mom and I were both really taken aback because we had just been on the highway. Neither of us had noticed any exits, nor had my mom gotten off at the wrong one. We had been on 295, and then suddenly we weren't. My mom tried to rationalize it at first, saying that she probably wasn't paying attention because she did have a bit of a headache forming and had just gotten off at the wrong exit. At the time, I agreed with her, but something felt very, very off, and suddenly, the Chick-fil-A breakfast wasn't sitting so well anymore. There weren't any signs for directions, only a few speed limit signs as we kept going, and when I looked at the dashboard clock, too, only a minute or so had gone by. By the looks of it, we were in the middle of nowhere, Virginia time to me just didn't seem to match up, but I just felt weird and dizzy at that point. My mom decided to keep driving forward. I don't know why she didn't just U-turn so we could go back, but she's always been the one to prefer to get actual directions. We didn't have cell service either, so that may have been why. That's pretty normal for rural Virginia, though. I work on a haunted farm during the Halloween season, so I'm pretty used to spotty reception. Well, we kept driving on, and after maybe 15 minutes, we came to what I guessed was this census-designated place's idea of a town. And by this, I mean that there was a service station and a church. We stopped the car, they filled us up, and my mom asked for directions. The guys were pretty nice, your typical laid-back Southerners. They did tease my mom for her New York accent, though. 
When we explained that we'd gotten turned around coming off of 295, they looked really surprised. The younger of the two guys said that coming from the direction we had, we were driving towards 295 North, not away from it. That really threw us for a loop. They asked if we'd ever done this trip before, if we were new to Virginia, et cetera, et cetera, and were very shocked when we said yes. We all got quiet after that, and my mom and I got back in our car and drove another 20 minutes to get back on the highway. Once we were back en route, that hit in my stomach went away. Neither of us really talked anymore about it, and we didn't mention it to our family once we got to Jersey. I've thought about this experience a lot since this happened. I tried to rationalize it, but the more I think about it, the weirder it gets. I mean, sure, plenty of people make driving mistakes and when they're tired, you know, but my mom and I had both had our coffee well before this had happened. What really trips me up is how we were driving towards 295 and not away from it and how far away from the exit we were on that country road that and how little time had passed between being on the interstate and then not being on the interstate. Like I said, I thought maybe I'd just dreamt it. I was on the phone with my mom yesterday, though, and she brought it up out of nowhere. I guess she was thinking about it because we were trying to decide what to do for Thanksgiving. She asked if I remembered that time we teleported, which is a very funny way to start a conversation, but then she got serious and said that it had really freaked her out. She recounted the events almost exactly how I did here, but she did say that there was a sign along the country road pointing to the service station. Regardless of what actually happened, it was a bizarre and jarring experience. At least it taught me to always appreciate friendly gas station employees. Thank you guys so much for listening to this week's episode, this Halloween special edition episode of Blame It on the Aliens. I hope you were thoroughly spooked and I hope you enjoyed these stories. I personally enjoyed the mixture of all of different subreddits. I know that as a reminder, No Sleep subreddit is fictional or supposedly and I'm not going to... Um, tell you guys which ones are fictional and which ones are not. I think it's fun to kind of use your imagination and imagine that all of them are real. And maybe I will do a poll on Instagram. I announced last week that I'm on Instagram now at Blaming on the Aliens podcast username. Look me up, DM me. And I want to know which ones you think are from No Sleep and which ones you think are from other subreddits, which are true. It'll be a fun little game. So don't cheat. Don't look up the titles. And I want to know what you guys think. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate me five stars wherever you're listening. And make sure that you hit the subscribe or notification bell and follow button on Spotify or Apple Music or wherever you're listening to make sure that you're getting updates about my new releases so you don't miss any spooky content. And if you would like to send in your own personal spooky story, please do at blameitonthealiens1 at gmail.com or you can find me on Instagram and DM me there. Would love that very much. I love you guys and I will be back next week with another spooky episode.